You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Find me online at JackieDaly.com or on the X at Jackie Daly Host. Subscribe for free. Spotify, iHeartRadio, or The Blaze. Uh, Listen, this show, I've got my friend Sanjay Narayan back on the show. He's with the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. We're talking about the plan to store all of the nation's spent nuclear fuel rods in the Permian Basin of West Texas, the biggest oil and gas field in America, putting at risk this engine of economic activity. It helps to give Texas its $32 billion surplus in the budget and makes us number one in the world. Taking it out would advantage our worst enemies. It's a really, really bad idea to store it there. Sanjay will talk with me about this. He is an expert uh, and also a lawyer, actually. And then we'll speak with Doug Sandridge from Fulcrum Energy. He's going to tell us why all of these oil and gas executives are now starting an effort to get behind nuclear energy. You heard me correctly. Even though natural gas competes with nuclear to feed the grid feed and give us electricity, they actually are now forming an alliance to say publicly, publicly, we need more nuclear energy. Why would oil and gas executives do that? Doug will explain it. Again, Doug Sandridge, Fulcrum Energy. And hey, I was sailing in the Atlantic last week, so I was on break. And because of that, I've been really late at getting to, you know, a long overdue uh, eulogy to my friend, I wish, Toby Keith. We lost Toby Keith recently, as you might know, huge country music superstar, and it really broke my heart. Jeff Fisher here is in studio to share his thoughts as well, because why we have to pay tribute to Toby Keith for many reasons. Well, rest in peace to Toby. I mean, he passed away on February 5th. Uh, 2024. I'm sorry. It's a weekly show. No, I know. I'm just, I'm just giving vacation. people. I'm just telling people the facts. That's all. I'm just <laughs> telling people the facts. Rest in peace. Making Toby. me feel bad. Died of stomach cancer. Uh, you know, his astrological sign was cancer too. I just find that interesting. Jeffy, That's all. Inappropriate. <laughs> Listen, Toby Keith was uh, and and he was a monster. I loved him. Yeah. Well, but he he worked in the oil fields as a young man. Started out as a derrick hand, and then an operations manager. Uh, played with the Easy Money Band and sometimes would have to interrupt his shows, reportedly, uh, to go work in the oil field if he got paged. That's how real and authentic Toby Keith was. Well, he was a real country artist. For sure. And, and, and uh, you know, it absolutely boasts to, uh, you know, after a while, it's like, you know what, I'm just going to play guitar. I'm not going to. How about you paid somebody else uh, <laughs> in the oil fields? Okay, I'm busy. But it does... <laughs> Uh, show that uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, a Hollywood country star. No, I love that, right? Yeah. Remember the Alan Jackson song, Gone Country? Like, you know, that here comes this chick from Long Island. Look at her boots. She thinks she's a country music artist. Right. Or so-and-so can't make it in L.A. So now he's going to show up in Nashville and try to rebrand himself as a country music artist with his phony accent. Drives me crazy. Toby Keith is from Oklahoma. He is the real deal. Like, I love... I only can can tolerate authenticity from country music. I, I, I can I can sniff out a phony in five seconds, and I, I have no tolerance for it. I don't listen to it at all anymore because they're not country like CMA country my tail. I used to wear a hat in law school. CMA country my butt. 
So, but you know what? Okay, Toby Keith, I I look to him for for inspiration. I I think of his songs when I drive in to do the show sometimes. Because remember, he says, he's saying, how do you like me now? In the song, he says this, when I took off to Tennessee, I heard that you made fun of me. Okay, I took off to Tennessee to go to Vanderbilt Law School. And some people made fun of me too. And then he says, you married into money, girl. Ain't it a funny world? And he says, now I'm living in your radio. How do you like me now? Which is, I made it. How do yeah. you like me now? So, you know, hey, I live in some people's radio too. So do you. Right? Yes. This is like a, this is like a radio anthem. If you are on this medium, Toby Keith has written your song. Or if you served in the military, obviously. He has some very, very famous songs. Well, and he uh, paid great respect to the military, uh, traveling with the USO uh, for many times yes. uh, in the Middle East. And he was well-respected for that. And he uh, and that was just tremendous of him to do that with no no question whatsoever. He, he did it. And, of course, they, you know, the famous story of him uh, in the middle of a show getting bombed and then coming right back after the bombing stopped. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. Bad, but uh, yes, bad, bad tale. Yes, he's uh, he's the real deal. You know, I saw an interview with him where some, I don't know, woke clown was interviewing him and saying, some people think that you're exploiting patriotism and, you know, wrapping yourself in the flag and all this stuff. He's like, here's a letter from a member of the military saying, I don't like what Toby Keith is doing, exploiting the military. And he was, Toby Keith was so cool. He was so calm. He's like, you know what, man? For every one of those you got, I got 10,000 that says the opposite. <laughs> Would you like a hot dog? Let's go get a hot dog. <laughs> and he just walked out and bought the guy a hot dog. I mean, really, he was a cool cat. He knew exactly who he was, you know? And so anyway, I, I'm a huge fan. His era was like the last era for me of real country music. Like I stopped listening after about mm, 2000 or so. Or so. Rest yeah. in peace, Toby Keith. Yes, please. What a great American. We were all blessed to have known him and had him to be that voice for working class America and for the military and for anyone who loves this country. So, all right, off to break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Follow me online at JackieDaly.com or on the X at Jackie Daily Host. Subscribe for free. Spotify, The Blaze, iHeartRadio, and many other places where quality fob- <laughs> quality podcasts are found. <sighs> okay, what a day. Um, you know, I, I speak frequently about my family's background in nuclear energy. I grew up right next to a nuclear plant um, in Southern Ohio, where... Uh, uranium was enriched, and it was like the most beloved employer in the region because people had really good federal jobs there. Um, strangely, for people who live next to a nuclear plant, um, after decades of you know no incidents of problems, we become very supportive. And so, you know, I'm pro nuclear energy, uh, but you probably have heard my opposition to storing spent nuclear fuel in West Texas, in the Permian Basin, the United States' most active, massive 
monstrous oil field, right? One of our most profitable, the most profitable shale play, um, producing more oil than most countries in OPEC, for crying out loud. For some reason, uh, some people have selected this exact place to store spent nuclear fuel. Uh, I'm opposed. And joining me on the line is Sanjay Narayan. He's a friend. He is an appointee by Texas Governor Abbott to the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. He is also a member of Color Us United, uh, which works to advance meritocracy. Sanjay, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a privilege. Always fun to have you, too. And so um, I know that you are you know, truly an expert on this topic. I heard you speak uh, not too long ago at a group here in Dallas and was blown away with your encyclopedic knowledge uh, of this topic, as well as should be, given your appointment here. Um, you know, I'm listening to the commentary, Sanjay, and a certain congressman from West Texas was telling me, oh, everyone in West Texas wants this nuclear spent fuel. This is more jobs. Let me tell you, I hang out in West Texas. My show is broadcast on KLIF 107.1 FM Midland, Odessa, also 1070 AM Midland, Odessa, and the 10 surrounding counties. I am very much in touch with the people there. And I've seen lists of names from here to the floor of prominent people in those areas who oppose this storage. So Sanjay, explain why. It is not contradictory to support nuclear energy, but oppose storing it in the Permian Basin. No, absolutely not. That's not a contradiction at all. And and the platform that you were mentioning that that we spoke at, it was actually a, a privilege again to actually share the stage with you. So so you're Thank too you. kind with that. The um, yeah, it, look, the the proposal here that's being bandied about is the private storage of much of, if not all, of the nation's spent nuclear fuel rods in, you know, some of the span, uh, expanse in the Permian Basins in between New Mexico and Texas. And I, just like you, query why, of all the places in the country, that the most active oil and gas field in our in a country, home to 25% of the, the, the country's oil and natural gas reserves, should be the home for that. I mean, the spent fuel rod needs to be stored somewhere. And there has definitely been a scare campaign over the last 30 to 40 years, particularly from radical environmentalists to to denigrate and downgrade the use of nuclear power, which is the most efficient and powerful source of fuel known to mankind. And truth be told, the amount of waste itself is actually quite small. It could all fit all of the spent fuel rods that are currently stored around the country right now could fit in a single football field about 15 yards high. And of course, it becomes less radioactive with time, so it actually becomes safer. But again, this is a very active area in West Texas. It's critical to not just our state's economy, but to our country's economy, to our ability to be energy independent. There are certainly better places, in my opinion, I'm glad to share it as well, where we could store this. And so it's really not an issue of do we need to store it? Of course we do. It's just picking a location and putting it in the middle of an active oil and gas field that's crucial to our economic and domestic security strikes me as wrong-sided. Well, and what I would love to know, and what no one has ever answered for me, and this would take it probably some private investigators 
is literally the life cycle of this idea. Who came up with this idea? I want to know who decided this. And were they at all affiliated with other energy interests around the world? Maybe with hostile foreign adversaries? I mean, you cannot underestimate in this era. I don't care who they are. Um, They're Wall Street bankers. They're oil and gas companies. They're institutional investors. Um, They are, uh, you know, university endowments, billionaires. There are all kinds of people running around investing across the world with, with one priority, which is profit, which I understand. But we have more than one priority from where I'm sitting, you and me, uh, which is also protecting the country from, you know, what, even terrorist activity. I mean, what if that storage unit out there becomes a target? It will become a target. Um, what, what do we do when someone decides to take advantage of a bad situation and now what we've contaminated, our largest oil field? Who, whose interest would that serve? And I know, you know, I'll, I'll make it my job to be the conspirator, uh, the conspiracy theorist, Sanjay, and not you. Uh, but as a radio host, I get to say all kinds of things that other people don't get to say uh, because of their jobs or whatever. But are you at all concerned about the security situation? I think that it could pose uh, tertiary risk, definitely. But I think it comes down to what you mentioned at the beginning, which is that there's a lot of money involved. Uh, This would be a federally backed project, of course. And so there's a lot of money and potentially jobs that are at stake. And at any decision that unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, ends up being a driving factor, uh, that is you know, that has to be balanced, however, against our interest as a people and as a state. And so I know that the Texas legislature and Governor Abbott have been active. They passed in the last session um, the right to uh, to deny the facility certain permitting aspects. So basically, you know, water rights, utility, et cetera, that would prevent it from being completed. So it's definitely I know it's high on the governor's radar Uh credit to kind of stop or at least slow down as much as we can this effort. And even, you know, if we have to store the waste and Texas proves to be a useful site and a company can do it here efficiently, safely, and effectively, we can, there are other places in the state, certainly, that can store it. It's just, we're totally in agreement. And even the journal article that you're citing mentioned the number of people who are opposed because why would you do it in an area that's so important to the domestic survival of our country? That's, that's the biggest, that's the biggest issue here. Eventually this will be stored. It's right now stored across the country. There are certainly places where it could be kept. It's just like why this particular place, it, uh, it, it kind of strains credulity. Yeah. If I, if I were an enemy of this country, the Permian Basin is the first place I'd put it period. I, and, and, and as you know, from, from the chair I'm occupying here, it's the last place I would put it. You know, I was saying. I would put. Go ahead. I would. I would put it. I would put it in the middle of a of a wind turbine factory <laughs> or solar panel farm if I was if it was just me. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, solid point. Okay, if if you contaminate a wind farm in the middle of nowhere, which is typically where they are, right, far from the demand they're serving, so you have to you know actually transmit 
the energy a long way to get it to people who need it. Uh, typically, what's the big deal? You contaminate a wind right. farm, who cares? You contaminate uh, solar panels, who cares? You contaminate people, big deal. I mean, Midland Odessa is not exactly, and, and the Permian Basin, is it's not exactly unpopulated. There are probably about, what, 300,000 people, um, I would think, in the, the actual city, uh, that, that area. Um, but also, as you're saying, you know, how many places? This is a huge country. To pretend we don't have a place to put this stuff, we even control islands in the middle of nowhere. What was wrong with that? What was wrong with Nevada? A uh, question for you having your expertise. Is it advantageous to put it in a mountainous region because the mountains would actually actually um, contain some of the damage if there were a problem, or does it really not make any difference? I mean, that was the original site, right? It was the Yucca Mountain Reserve in Nevada, uh, where this was all originally, I mean, at this point, probably 20 years ago, where they wanted to move the waste. But Harry Reid uh, was, you know, hate him or love him. He was a, a successful, highly successful and efficient majority leader. And he for the uh, and he was able to block that project. And so that's kind of what's left this in its spawn, in its wake, which is what do we do with it now? And, you know, Texas, as, I, as you obviously know, we still get a plurality of our power from natural gas and nuclear power is about 10%. So you're talking about 60% of our total grid comes from reliable sources like oil and gas, as well as uh, nuclear power. And so, you know, today is a cold day, for example. Earlier this year, we had a kind of a freeze for like two or three days. ERCOT was issuing uh, conservation notices. And that's because, again, we weren't generating enough power from reliable sources. So why are we threatening the areas that provide us with exactly the type of power and electricity, those key resources that we need, when there are alternative places to, to bury this and to keep it stored safely And so that way we can expand our use of nuclear power, quite frankly, which is a critical national security, vital interest, set aside the environmental benefits of it. It's needed so that we can actually power our country with reliable electricity. I mean, there's about 95 to 100 operating nuclear power plants in the country. We've only built one new one in the last 30 to 40 years. That's in Georgia. Hold that thought, Sanjay. Hold that thought. They're telling me to run to break. But we'll be right back with Sanjay Narayan of the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're back with Sanjay Narayan. He is an appointee to the Texas Radiation Advisory Board, also a member of Color Us United. And we're talking about the war over burying nuclear waste in America's busiest oil field, which is the Permian Basin, that is West Texas and also a part of New Mexico, um, of all the places you could put all of America's nuclear waste, and by the way, only temporarily. So you'd have to move it again. So there's the hazard of moving it from wherever it is now to West Texas, and then the hazard of moving it a second time. Why are we doing this? Who is behind this? You know, who, who, who is advantaged by putting at risk our largest oil field? Even though... As I said, I'm not opposed to nuclear energy. In fact, I'm emphatically in favor. Uh, but why on earth would you create this target for a terrorist attack in the biggest oil field? So 
Uh, Sanjay, you mentioned in the last segment Senator Harry Reid as being the goalie on this thing, keeping that spent fuel from going into Yucca Mountain, uh, which is in his state of Nevada. Very unfortunately for all of America, because that would be a logical place to put it. That's where, you know, back when um, we had more of a meritocracy in the government and uh, a government that, you know, both sides loved America unequivocally. Back in those days, they thought Yucca Mountain was a good idea. Now, some people want to move it to the Permian Basin. Uh, here's a quick fact on, on uh, Senator Harry Reid, which I just read in um, my friend David Blackman's uh, email blast. Uh, David has a great podcast and also on energy and related topics. He says this. This is a quote. Go read up just a little bit about Harry Reid. You will discover he came into the U.S. Senate with a meager net worth of less than $100,000. He somehow left office about 30 years later with a net worth of $100 million. How did he do that on his salary of less than $200,000 even today? 30 years ago, I don't know what he would have started at, but it's still less than $200,000. How did he do that? And... I'm sorry, but when I see decisions like the one on Yucca Mountain, which I believe puts the country at risk, um, I, immediately questions start popping into my head. Did this guy sell us out? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just telling you, $100,000 to $100 million in 30 years is pretty magical or something. There's no... Yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, I mean, I think there's even a Twitter account that just follows what Nancy Pelosi and her husband's trades are in order to receive like 100,000% rates of return. And Harry Reid's not the only person to have profited from his life in public service. I mean, who knows whether that played a role in his decision to oppose it. I'm, I'm sure at some level it did. You know, Bernie Sanders has three houses. Joe Biden has never worked a day in the private sector, has houses in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, houses all over the place. And so it, it really speaks ill of the type of public service that we're receiving where folks are not prevented from actually even trading on the information that they're doing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that we as, we as average citizens don't have access to this type of information. We would be penalized. There's a, definitely a, a two two-state system of justice and the way that these types of laws are prosecuted. And unfortunately, it just breeds kind of contempt and lack of trust into the decision-making process. Same reason why we're blocking the development now of LNG export facilities here in Houston and in New Orleans, all along the coast, that's going to really prohibit and prevent Texas from exploiting the type of resources that we have. And I have to believe, Jackie, that the reason that the Biden administration did that is for payback against Texas and Governor Abbott for trying to do something about the border. So in exchange for him, you know, leaving the border open as the administration wants to do, because we have the temerity to say, no, this is a problem that we're going to start sending illegal immigrants to other blue sanctuary cities to actually force them to deal with the consequences of it, that we're going to put up razor wire and concertina wire to prevent illegal crossings into our country, that the Biden administration is going to now hamstring and prevent the investment and jobs for tens of thousands 
of American citizens and particularly Texans here in our state. I just find that unconscionable. Even if you disagree politically with one another, we should all be looking out for our collective national interest. And there's just inexplicable. I, I just I'm at a loss for to, to understand why someone would do this to our own country. But that's the situation that we're in right now until November. Well, and, and remember that Texas has a $32 billion surplus, last time I checked, most of it because of oil and gas severance taxes uh, that, that makes us one of the wealthiest states by far. And so we can do things like secure the border, um, partially because, maybe, maybe mainly because of oil and gas production. Um, and the, the other thing is, very rarely talked about, but everyone should talk about it, um, you know, Hunter Biden's deals that were questionable with Burisma and other companies, not just Burisma in Ukraine. There were other countries, too. People, these were oil and gas deals. These were oil and gas deals. Who do those foreign producers compete with? Us. Who 100%. gets who gets shut down with this LNG policy of Joe Biden? Us. I mean, I don't know how much clearer and easier this could be, but nobody wanted to talk about, you know, every, you hear a lot about Burisma, you know, even on conservative media. So you say Burisma, a lot of people will know what that is. Um, but if you say, what does Burisma do? Anybody. People typically don't know. And so, you know, look, the Biden family, Hunter allegedly, making $83,000 a month or something off of oil and gas while his dad is campaigning saying, I will end fossil fuels, whatever right. that means. Um, yeah, just quick review there. And I'll give you one other, <laughs> while I've got this David Blackman piece pulled up, one other little factoid, because it's just too rich. He says, spend a few minutes researching Nancy Pelosi, and you will discover she's the daughter of famous mob-connected Baltimore, uh, Thomas D'Alessandro, another five minutes in, and you will find that Pelosi and her husband had become multi-hundred millionaires the last quarter century thanks to making amazingly lucky stock trades. And Pelosi has been a steadfast opponent of enacting any congressional ethics prohibitions against insider trading. Now, when I was there, she enacted bans on the staff we could no longer accept right. a bottle of wine yeah. at a restaurant. or are, there, were, there were members of Congress who wouldn't even take a stick of gum from someone because they were terrified of the brand new ethics rules under Pelosi's regime. But no problem that they're trading this way uh, and becoming ex- I mean, extremely rich. This answers the question when I first got there as a staffer. I'm looking around at all these soulless people and thinking, what are they doing here? It's not like they care about anything. Oh, oh, they cared about some things, just very different things than what I cared about. Oh, yeah. I mean, day one, day one, uh, Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline, but then he reopened the Nord 2 pipeline for (laughs) Western Europe to become addicted to Russian natural gas, which basically increased Russia's economic power over Ukraine and Eastern Europe. He's begging Venezuela and other countries, including Iran, by weakening sanctions against them in order to entice them to produce more Meanwhile, at the same time, he's trying to shut down the domestic industry. And this is all in service of this radical kind of climate alarmism that's going on in this country and around the globe. 
Yes, it's true. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. Yes, it's true that in the last 200 years, there's been roughly a two degree Fahrenheit increase in the temperature. And probably some of that is related to human activity. But we should not lose sight of the fact that this entire argument is being misframed. The purpose of public policy is not to cut carbon emissions. It's to improve human welfare and to maximize prosperity. I mean, over the same 200 years, Jackie, the average human lifespan at the end of the 19th century was about 35 years old. Over the next 200 years, because of like medical and technological advancements powered by fossil fuels, the same things that they're asking us to import from overseas, which we are blessed with in our state, the average lifespan is now double because of that, not in spite of it. There are 98% fewer climate-related deaths today than there were 100 years ago. Eight times more people die of the cold than die of the heat. Three billion people around the globe use dung and firewood as their main source of heat. And over 800 million people use less energy than an average American refrigerator. Those are the facts. People deserve to live in prosperity and advance into the middle class. And the only way we're going to do that is by embracing the use of fossil fuels and nuclear power long term. And so just to bring it full circle back to the original topic, why would we mix the, the, the storage of waste along with our critical resources here in our state? There are places to do it that are safe. But at the end of the day, our policy needs to be focused on maximizing human welfare. And that requires that we take advantage of the resources that God has blessed this country and our state with. I'm talking with Sanjay Narayan, and Texas is very lucky to have him as a member of the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. If you missed the first part of this conversation, you can catch it on podcast uh, at JackieDaily.com. Connect easily to The Blaze podcasts or Spotify or iHeartRadio. Sanjay, thanks so much for coming on. That was awesome. Always appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Jackie Daily Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daily Show. Find me online at JackieDaily.com, on the X at Jackie Daily Host, and subscribe for free just about anywhere that quality podcasts are found, but most especially on The Blaze, The Blaze, which, yes, is Klimbeck's network, uh, also Spotify and iHeartRadio. Okay, on the line, I have my friend Doug Sandridge returning to the show um, he is the senior VP over at Fulcrum Energy Capital Funds, and he is kind of uh, in the middle of this effort by oil and gas executives to be advocates publicly on behalf of nuclear energy. And that all seems a little strange. In fact, I, I recall when I worked on Capitol Hill, hearing some people say that uh, you know, maybe the reason that nuclear has been blocked for so long and has not been able to expand, you know, we haven't had a new nuclear plant really uh, for most of the last 40 years, uh, was because the oil and gas industry was lobbying against it because they did not want uh, competition, at least natural gas uh, or coal. I don't know how true that is. I'm just saying it's something I heard here and there. This is exactly the opposite of that. What Doug is doing is uh, working with other folks like Chris Wright of Liberty, who has also been a a guest on the show in the past, um, to make this bold statement in favor of nuclear energy. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be back. Great to hear your voice. 
Likewise, I'm sorry I missed you at the NAEP conference in Houston. Uh, I know you were running around there. We just missed each other. Um, you missed a great interview with Governors Abbott and Stitt, but you can probably catch it online, um, uh, I would assume, at NAEP.com or AAPL.org or something like that. Um, so, Doug, you and Chris and others um, are making this very deliberate push into, I mean, devoting some serious time and energy to saying to the government, to the public, that we should get behind nuclear energy. Explain why that's important to you as someone who has spent 45 years in oil and gas. Well, let me first start off by by trying to dispel this myth that oil and gas people are against nuclear energy, because this is what really inspired me to start off on this adventure because I had some friends in the nuclear industry who had made statements that uh, oil and gas people do not like nuclear energy and that the industry as a whole uh, has done a lot to undermine uh, the nuclear industry like you had alluded to. And the, the fact of the matter was I didn't believe that. And so I started researching it and I could not find a single person. And still after a year and a half of embarking on this venture, I've still yet to find a single person in my industry that is anti-nuclear. Now, obviously, I can't speak for everyone, and there's millions of people that work in the oil and gas industry. So somewhere, I'm sure there is someone, but by and large, the vast majority of people in the oil and gas industry do support nuclear energy. And I've not been able to find any indications of any companies uh, that have gone out of their way to try and undermine nuclear energy. Uh, especially in the last 50 years. Now, perhaps there's some rumors that back in the 60s and maybe the 70s that there were some some companies who had tried to undermine nuclear energy because the oil and gas companies thought it was a, was a, a threat to their industry. But that certainly has not been the case um, for the last 50 years. So I think that's just a total myth. And that was part of the reason Chris Wright and I wanted to go out and dispel this rumor because I think oil and gas people are pretty sober-minded energy people. We believe that we need energy. We need a lot of energy. We need more energy than we need now. And we're not afraid to stand up and recognize another industry like nuclear. We recognize the value of an energy dense uh, energy source such as nuclear energy. And we're strong enough in our own skin to stand up and say, hey, uh, we, we're proud of what we do in the oil and gas business, but we're also happy to say nuclear energy has got to be part of our our energy future. And we think it's a powerful message because, like you said, you don't see coal executives coming out endorsing wind, you know, wind industry. You don't see solar executives endorsing natural gas. So I think the fact that we're willing to do it, we have really nothing to gain by that sends a powerful message to our political leaders that we need more sober energy policies, and that includes more nuclear energy. Right. I mean, at at the core of what you're saying in this declaration, I mean, this is a formal declaration of oil and gas executives in support of nuclear energy dated March 28, 2023. You're basically saying the world, well, in fact, here's, let me just quote, the world desperately needs much more energy. And I mean, that's for sure. Even if we expanded uh, dramatically nuclear energy, this this growing population around the world is is 
we'll, we'll be lucky if we can meet the needs right now because people don't realize um, the population continues to grow. Uh, we're talking about billions of people multiplying. Uh, plus, yeah. plus, even now, um, oil is by far the most traded commodity on planet Earth. Like, if you see the graph, it blows away everything else. There's nothing that comes close. Um, but, it, but in this country, we don't even use oil for electricity. We use nuclear uh, for electricity. We use natural gas and coal. So, wind and solar. Wind and solar. And, and by the way, I'm aware that um, your co-signer here, Chris Wright, actually started his career um, you know, with, with an emphasis on nuclear. He's kind of known as like the fracking guy in Colorado. <laughs> Uh, but actually, he's he started out from the nuclear side and eventually uh, came over to the oil and gas side. So um, what do you think, Doug, is the future of nuclear in this country? I mean, I'm awfully concerned because, as I said, there's been so little expansion, yet it's it's really a terrific solution for everything. Like, for example, in uh, here in Texas on the Gulf Coast. If we have a hurricane or an ice storm, it's that nuclear plant that just keeps plugging away. No matter what else goes down, nuclear plugs away, and we fought, we rely on it to stay alive. You're right. Well, let me tell you a real quick story. I was teaching a class at the University of Oklahoma a few weeks ago, and I, of course, try not to be overtly uh, an advocate for anything. I'm, I'm there to teach the students and let them make their own decisions, but... I think some of the students sense that I do support nuclear energy. And so after the class, some of the students asked, came up after the class and they want to ch- chit chat and, you know, ask questions they didn't want to ask in front of everyone else. And several of the students said, what are you advocating that we use nuclear energy for instead of? And I said, that's the thing. I'm not advocating that we stop using anything. I'm advocating that we need more energy and that this nuclear energy that we hope to develop is accretive to what we have. It's in addition to what we have. I'm not advocating less gas or less solar or less wind. I'm just saying we need to support nuclear, uh, and that's in addition to what we already have. So to answer your question about what's going to happen in the States, I don't know, but this is what I hope is going to happen. You know, the last three or four years, we've seen an incredible change of views there's a lot of momentum moving forward on nuclear energy around the world. And yet, you know, we don't always see it. The average person who's not in tune with energy doesn't always know what's going on and what, what's going on behind the scenes. I heard another nuclear person answer this question, a question the other day this way he says, what we don't realize is there is so much going on behind the scenes in the nuclear industry right now that the average person doesn't know. And he, he, likened it to a duck that's sitting on a river and the the river's running but the duck is sitting still and it says how does it that duck sitting still well you have no idea how fast that duck is paddling underneath the river to stay in that same and i think that that's kind of where we are in nuclear right now we've got a lot of things going on in the u.s and around the world and nuclear is paddling very fast right now but it's sort of out of view of the public now we've got all this great PR, all this advocacy, so many people are supporting nuclear energy right now. But that's all good, well and good, except that we now have to translate that goodwill 
uh, into action. And there are still some formidable hurdles here in the U.S. because our regulatory environment at the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission is a little dysfunctional. We have over 50 new nuclear technologies that are in development. We do not have the staff at the, at the NRC to even begin to evaluate all those technologies. And so we really need, we really need some serious, um, help at the NEC, NRC. We need to uh, improve and staff up the NRC so that we can get some of these technologies approved and we can get some more nuclear power plants built. We also have the problem that we have not built many nuclear power plants like you alluded to in the last 40 years. So we do not have the supply chains. We do not have the labor force, which puts a lot of price pressure on how to build them. And so we've got to figure out how are we going to build these economically and affordably. So you asked me what I think is going to happen. I think we are going to see both large um, gigawatt scale additional um, plants build in the United States. Uh, I am quietly aware of about six that are that are in the works right now at various places across the U.S. So I think we will see some gigawatt scale, additional gigawatt scale plants constructed. And hopefully as our supply chains and labor force gets whipped into shape, we'll be able to build those at ever increasingly lower prices. But I also see a huge market for these advanced nuclear reactors, the small modular reactors and the micro reactors that are going to do all sorts of things that we don't normally think about nuclear doing. As you, you probably have heard, uh, Dow Chemical is in a contract with X-Energy, one of the small modular reactors, to build a reactor to provide process heat and electricity to, to a plant down on the Gulf Coast. I mean, you don't normally think about a private company building its own reactor. For, <laughs> okay. But that, that, that's where I see things going. Yeah, so, okay, hold that thought. I have to get a break. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Doug Sandridge. He is down there at Fulcrum Energy Capital Funds uh, in Colorado. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Doug Sandridge up there at Fulcrum or Yes, up there, uh, from Texas at least, at Fulcrum Energy. And we're talking about nuclear energy and the fact that oil and gas executives are getting behind nuclear energy, which might sound a little counterintuitive since uh, natural gas is a, a competitor, actually, with nuclear, as far as the grid feed is concerned, keeping the lights on. Um, but before we left, Doug, you said several things that caught my attention. Um Number one, you're aware of six new plants in the works around the country. Um, you think it's going in the direction of small modular reactors or micro reactors. And so, uh, and, and you express concern about the supply chain. So all of that interests me. Number one, here's the first question. Who controls most of the world's uranium? Uh, your, uranium is, is really an abundant resource around the world. It, um, we have a lot in the United States. There's a lot in Canada, a lot in Australia. There's a lot in, in Russia. So there's plenty of uranium. The problem has been that we have sort of stopped mining uranium in the West. And so, and we've stopped processing the uranium in the West. So right now, most of the uranium does not come from the United States. A lot still does come from Canada, but Russia controls a lot of it. 
and a lot of it is processed in Russia. But that's a short-term problem. I mean, short-term in the matter of a few years, because what we have to do is ramp up. You know, if we're if we're concerned about energy security, we need to ramp up the uh, production of our own uranium here in the U.S. And then we need to process it here so that we're not reliant on, you know, Russian supply chains or supply chains from Kazakhstan or someplace else. So I hope that answers that first question. Will we be able to supply ourselves? You know, if we if we if we expand nuclear, which I would love to see, I just want to be sure that doesn't mean that we are becoming uh, reliant on hostile regimes. But you're saying that all we need to do is probably get the regulatory agencies out of the way for permitting. Yeah, I think we can be self-reliant. I think that's another advantage to nuclear is we can be self-reliant uh, on uranium if we have the will to mine it ourselves or, or or rely on supplies from people who we perceive as friendly like Canada. Yeah. But uh, there there's plenty of, plenty of that. I mean, right now a lot of the uh, the fuel for these advanced nuclear reactors is only processed in Russia. So we're now just now in the process of trying to ramp up the uh, processing of fuel here in the U.S. So, for instance, you probably heard that Bill Gates uh, is is uh, participating in a new power plant, nuclear power plant in Wyoming, where they're building it at the site of a retiring coal plant, which is a great idea. Uh, but they've delayed the... Uh, opening or the projected uh, start of that plant by a couple of years because it was relying on a fuel that up until now has only been available or mostly been available from Russia. And then after the Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, then, of course, nobody wants to buy that fuel from Russia anymore. So we're going to have to develop, you know, new supply chains for that. But it's perfectly possible. We've just we've just gotten lazy about developing our own natural resources and, and processing those, just like rare earth minerals. Let's talk about, very quickly, small modular reactors and micro reactors. Here's my question. Um, you were saying, like, individual companies, businesses, could actually have their own nuclear reactor, I guess, on a microgrid? Would it be off the grid? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of both. Now, I, I, I don't want to speak for other companies, but generally speaking... I think that some of these industrial plants that might want a a nuclear reactor for process heat might just have a reactor that does nothing but but provide process heat. It might also provide electricity for that same plant. And I would imagine, I'm just guessing now, I imagine that in most of these circumstances, they're going to have a connection to the grid where they can sell excess power to the grid either all the time or maybe in in, in uh, cases of emergency like Winter Storm Uri. So, uh, again, I, I think every situation is going to be different, but as a general rule, I think these private companies are going to make a react, uh, build a reactor for themselves and have the capability of diverting excess electricity into the grid if needed or if they you know perceive that as an extra source of revenue for them. Okay, and how practical is this? I think it's very practical. I mean, I, I think that I've heard about um, I've heard about some oil and gas fracking companies, like in West Texas, an idea that you would develop nuclear power. Now, out there, you'd probably be developing your own microgrid. But what they want to do is, as you know, power is really hard to come by 
in West Texas because there's so much growth and demand and their utilities just cannot keep up with the demand. So what they're, uh, some of these companies are thinking about doing is uh, developing their own microgrid so that they can run their frack crews and their drilling rigs off of electric power, but it would be clean electric power rather than diesel power. Right. And this is quieter and cleaner. But then I think these same companies would be in a position to, if they got, if we got another winter storm URI type situation and we needed uh, emergency power to the grid, they could shut down their frack and drilling operations for a few days and divert that power back into ERCOT, back into the, into the major grid. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, so, so these are just ideas I hear batted around. And, and, you know, when I first started on this a couple of years ago, I was not thinking about oil and gas people being involved in nuclear at all. However, now it's become clear that there's a lot of oil and gas companies that are getting into the nuclear space. So, for instance, I know that several of the majors, including Chevron, are heavily invested in nuclear energy. Our friend Chris Wright, his company has invested in Oklo, which is a, a small modular, modular reactor company. And then I've uh, just announced, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, you know, NOV, National Oil Well Varga, the, the titan of, of service companies in Houston, they just announced in January the formation of a wholly owned subsidiary called Shepherd Power, which is going to be their nuclear energy division. So, wow, 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 wow. Okay. I I'm blowing know. your mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely <laughs> learning some things here today. Um, you can understand why in an electrified oil patch. So, you know, there's, long story shorter, uh, my understanding from the Texas freeze post-mortem after the 2021 storm is that there was a time at the end of the Obama administration when the oil patch had new regulations that they electrify. So rather than running themselves um, off of the native in place natural gas, uh, they're actually on the grid. And so when the grid goes down, they go down. Um, I can easily imagine the advantages of having your own power source and your own microgrid rather than relying on the people at ERCOT who, you know, which is the Texas's regulator for electric power. Um, not only is the legislature making the grid more unreliable uh, by the way that they're transitioning it, but also uh, destabilizing the market, having people from out of state regulate our grid. Texas is the only state that has its own grid, by the way. Um, but they had people in Michigan and California sitting on the regulatory bodies and calling the shots. So guess what they did? They, when they were rolling the outages, they rolled them in West Texas in the oil patch first. This is the kind yeah. of nonsense that if you had your own power source, that, that wouldn't be your problem. That's correct. I mean, to, to clarify what you said earlier is, you know, in the, in the old days, you ran everything off. If you had a pipeline and you had natural gas and you'd use your own natural gas to run your own compressors to pump the gas down. And you're right. In the Obama administration, they started putting pressure on the oil companies to electrify that. So instead of using your own gas to run your own compressors to to push your gas through the pipeline, you went to electricity. Well, all of a sudden, now you're subject to the, the vagaries of the electric grid 
And and you're right. Uh, the oil, the gas business got criticized during winter storm Yuri because they couldn't deliver the gas. Well, they couldn't deliver the gas because they cut off the power <laughs> to those pipelines, and the gas was staying there, but they couldn't push it down the pipeline. So you're right. Having your own um, your own power source that would not be subject to being shut down by the whims of ERCOT, that would definitely make a lot more sense. So that's another another advantage to, to – in, in, we're, we're starting to see a, a melding of the oil and gas business and the nuclear business. And, and as you said, what do you see going forward? I think 10 years from now, you're going to see a lot of energy companies that are oil and gas and nuclear. You know, we've tried that with BP and Shell. I've tried to be oil and gas and solar or oil and gas and wind – and that hasn't worked out so well for them. But I think you're going to see uh, energy companies that are called themselves energy companies, but they actually work in oil and gas and nuclear. I, I'm predicting that for the next 10 years. Well, I I can say that I was watching the uranium uh, prices uh, for the last few years now and um, was very impressed with how things were going. Obviously, it's in demand. And um, I, I really... I really encourage this development because what it's going to do is if we can get more nuclear energy and especially the small reactors or micro reactors into the hands of a lot of people who can make their own power, that is taking the, the power to power away from the government and putting it into the hands of private individuals uh, who will be more competent, I'm sure. And, uh, Amen. Yeah, and, and then it's very hard to shut us down. Right, there's an emergency, no problem. You've got a thousand people who've got their own power. Uh, so anyway, that sounds like a dream come true to me. So they're telling me we're all out of time. I'm talking to Doug Sandridge, very smart guy, 45 years in oil and gas development, senior VP up at Fulcrum Energy Capital Funds uh, on behalf of Gondola Resources LLC in Fulcrum Energy. Doug, thanks so much for coming back. Hey, anytime, anytime you want to talk, I'm, I'm always ready to talk to you. Yes, sir. And please send my best to Chris Wright, one of my favorite Americans. I'll let him know. Thank All you. Right. Thanks so much, Doug. Have a great day. All right, bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. <laughs> 